Two weeks ago, I finished a month-long meditation retreat that was a self-retreat, which means that I did it in my home. Um, so I, I lived alone in silence and simplicity with the meditation practice for the month of March. And doing a long retreat anywhere from one to three months every winter is something that I've done for almost 15 years. And just the last couple of years, I've been exploring this model of self-retreat and not actually going to a center, but the self-reliance of uh, seeing what I've learned from all these years of practice and applying it without the external supports. And four days before the end of that month-long retreat, um, I was starting what is usually called an integration process, which means that you don't want to just go from full days of meditation and uh, jump in your car and get on your cell phone and race off to the next thing. It's not very skillful for the nervous system or our hearts to do it that way. So you do a little bit of integrative practice where you add some more activities and some more information and input. And the very day that I started doing that, I opened my door to front door to go outside and take a walk, a long walk. I was really looking forward to it, and sitting in my doorway was a bag. I thought, oh. So I brought it inside, and somebody had left me a gift, knowing that it was towards the end of my retreat, and I really hadn't seen anybody in a month. Uh, and they left me this gift, and there was goat cheese and an avocado, and then there was blueberries and ripe strawberries. And my heart just leapt with joy the way that it can when we're connected to the preciousness of life. It doesn't have to be a big gift or a big thing. Oh, thank you. Somebody thought of me. But what touched me even more was an unsigned note in this bag. And the note said, enjoy the peace and solitude. Know that you are loved. And I thought, what more needs to be said? You know, enjoy the peace and solitude. Know that you are loved. You could probably just end the teaching right there and just have a sit for an hour and say that to yourself over and over again. Keep drinking in the peace and the solitude. Know that you are loved. There's these two pieces, you know, the insight piece and the loving kindness piece. So, of course, tears are rolling down my face because I'm very open from this retreat. And because I was moving into a time where I was about to be doing more, I had had the thought that morning, oh, I'm coming to Wednesday morning class and excitement and what am I going to talk about? That's the Dharma teacher's endless question. What could I talk about? that hasn't been said before or in a new way. And in that moment, I realized that this retreat for me was absolutely an expression of this note that came in from the outside. Uh, and that the direct experience of peace in all its forms um, and the love that manifests and informs the peace uh, really were what was close to my heart. So that's what I want to talk about. To talk about that, 
I first want to go all the way back to the time of the Buddha and the very first teaching that he offered to his friends when he thought about, oh, what might be helpful, you know, his practicing friends. And those of you that have been around for a while know that that's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And that teaching is very much about peace uh, and also about how we get caught and peace becomes very elusive. So the first truth of being a human being living a life, this truth of, you know, my friend that I spoke about during the blessing, she was living her life, things are going along, her father has a massive stroke out of nowhere. There it is, first noble truth. The fact that illness comes, somebody was saying during the precepts renewal, we don't know when we're going to lose someone close to ourselves. That's part of the first noble truth. And it's part of the first noble truth that when we get things that we really like, um, they disappear. And then we get something that we don't like. Conditions aren't quite ideal. And when we struggle with the conditions of being human, um, it hurts. That's a really simple way of talking about the second noble truth. And as the struggle starts to be released with those very difficult conditions, same conditions, but the struggle starts to be released, then we have the third noble truth. And my favorite definition of the third noble truth continues to be Sylvia's words. Peace is possible. It's such a beautiful way to express the fact that waking up is possible in the midst of living, getting older, getting sick, uh, dying, things coming and going, and our heartstrings are being pulled constantly by the events of life. Within all that, peace is possible. And then the path to peace whether it's the precepts practice we were talking about earlier this morning, the meditation practice, uh, really placing our hearts and intentions uh, in the direction of wisdom. All these are paths to peace. And I feel like one of the best teachings connected to this, which I know Donald loves to talk about in terms of the relationship on the continuum towards peace is that teaching of the two arrows. So, you know, that the teaching goes that, I think of it as the first noble truth is being shot up by an arrow. You know, oh, it wasn't, it's, it didn't work out, or, you know, there's illness present right now, which, which there is for me, actually, right now, uh, post-India. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there it is, being shot by an arrow. This is challenging. You know, and then there's this incredible series of moments of choice. Are we going to shoot the second arrow of struggling extra with the truth of challenge of life? You know, and we don't just have the moment to choose once. It's an ongoing series of choices. And then I think of it as, oh, okay, there's the first arrow of, you know, someone in our life is really suffering and we're, you know, touched by that and then we send a second arrow of how we're struggling with that and then we send a third arrow with how we're trying to micromanage it and control it and then there's a fourth arrow of how we judge ourselves for doing that and pretty soon we're filled with arrows you know (laughs) 
And that moment of kindness towards the whole system filled with arrows, because we do that. And in that very moment of love and kindness, um, all the arrows start falling out by themselves, because in the moment of you know, pure kindness and love, there's no struggle. So then they lose their stick and they start falling out. It sounds good, might sound relatively easy. The question I'm continually asking myself is how do we actually do that? And so that's what I want to talk about, different different doorways, different flavors of cultivating this peace. But because I'm going to talk a lot about cultivation aspect of peace, I also have to say that the peace is already available. You know, we're just filled with arrows. If the arrows weren't there, the peace is already there. We're not trying to birth something or build something or create something that isn't present now. Uh, We're just revealing it. So that famous quote by Sogyal Rinpoche that I find when I say it to myself, it really calls it into the room, it calls it into the system. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves of the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. Rest in natural great peace. Just rest. And the relentless fury of the neurotic thoughts and all the conditions that created where we are now are true. Rest. It feels important in terms of cultivating peace to first talk about the doorway of the body and particularly the doorway of the nervous system. Because here we are in a culture and we're all very aware that it literally seems like every year or every five year cycle here, especially talk about in the Bay Area where we are, the pace keeps rising. The information available keeps growing. The technology to access it becomes more and more portable um, in these five-year cycles. And while there are tremendous benefits to that on one hand, on the other hand, our poor nervous systems are designed for a life that does not include these things. You know, the nervous system is evolutionary, and so it transforms and grows on evolutionary time, not technological time. So naturally, even without all that input, one of the functions of the nervous system is when there's too much or it comes in too fast, as Sylvia puts it, we startle. You know, you know, something happens, and we startle, right? And so in terms of peace with that, when the nervous system startled, when our, when our emotional system startled, it's really hard to have access to the heart of peace because the way it functions, I mean, just the way I just moved my hands, when we get startled by things, uh, the energy naturally moves up. 
You know, it's just how the nervous system works. So, you know, and the breath gets caught. So there's not a full breath anymore. Um, all these different pieces of the amped up nervous system. And one of the statistics that I continually reflect on is this piece around pain in the body and how, uh, you know, some doctors have done research that 80% of the pain that we might feel around a, a particular situation in our body is actually the struggle and the startle around the area that we might call pain. It's, it's the vibration or reaction or shooting of a lot of arrows around that thing, that injury or that chronic place of holding that we call pain. 80%. It's amazing. You know, so if you check in your body right now of, of where the uh, contraction is in this moment, you know, for me, it's right behind this shoulder where the mouse arm does its work. And then the contraction around it of that fear of, but I have to work on the computer today. You know, and then it, it starts protecting and creating these shields of protection around that and more tightness and more layers. And oh, you can just see how it grows. You have your own. So I want to do a simple experiential meditation around uh, a technique that I've found really helps remind the body about its inherent peace that's available, even within you know, a possible overwhelm or startle or you know, nervous system out of balance. Really what it is is it's helping the nervous system come back into its natural peace and ease. So, you don't have to close your eyes, but maybe just have your eyes kind of down towards the floor versus looking around the room. And first, check your breath and see in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, the Satipatthana. Buddha talks about noticing whether there's a long breath or a short breath. So notice whether the breath in this moment is you know, fairly relaxed or deep, or there might be some kind of holding happening in the breath, and it's, it's shallow and caught in some way, not fully in the belly. And the interesting thing about that teaching is the Buddha didn't say, if your breath is short, make it different. He just said, notice. And what we know about the emotional body and the nervous system is that when things are feeling a little distracted, a little bit tight, it actually is skillful to take a couple of deeper breaths. So you can try it just all the way down from deep in the abdomen. 
Try taking three deeper breaths, really focusing on the exhale and the letting go. And then take a moment and bring the attention into contact with the sensations in your hands and your feet. And it might be really clear to you when I suggest this that it's better to focus on either the hands or the feet. That's fine. What's there? Can you feel the contact with the floor or your legs? Is there tingling, vibration, heat, cool, numb, tight? What is there? What scientists are finding with this very simple technique is that when the nervous system or the emotional body gets startled and the energy quickly rises up, that a simple mindfulness technique like feeling the hands and the feet automatically remind the system to come back into balance, to come back into wholeness just by being mindful of the whole system. It's very interesting. So you can keep playing with that from time to time as you listen if you like. Um, but it's a powerful thing to train in actually and it's, it's something that I have trained in over the years to realize that when I'm in distress about something just a simple training of, oh, you know, not grounded. Feel your hands, feel your feet, come back to center, come back to um, wholeness. So that's one doorway. And a second doorway will be no surprise. It's the doorway of the heart and the mind. And and how they, they really meet in some way. You know, when you go to Asia, when you go to Thailand and you ask somebody uh, to point to their chitta or their mind, they point here, they point to their heart. You know, these, these are connected and they speak to each other and, and form each other. So peace through the doorway of the heart and the mind one thing that I really enjoy are something, I think I've talked about this before with you, something I call creative mental notes. Sylvia calls them long mantras. They're the same thing. I call them creative mental notes. So mental noting in Vipassana tradition is a process of giving a name or a label to what's happening. And I think of it the same way as when you know a child's name, they're more likely to connect and interact with you and have a relationship versus if you don't know their name, if you can't quite see them, they're running around and, you know, you can't connect. 
our minds are the same way. If we don't quite know what's going on, if we're not quite able to name what's going on, our minds are running around, our hearts are running around like, you know, children with a lot of energy in a small space. <laughs> so this labeling or mental noting process is important. So I like to do long creative ones when I'm not sitting in meditation. And I have to say one of my favorite ones I got from Sylvia, but I added a phrase to it. So I thought I would just add the phrase because I'd imagine she says it often enough that some of you use it as well. And it comes from uh, one of her students who had an illness, and I don't think it was MS, but it was some sort of illness that progressed over time. Very challenging. And the student was working with Sylvia and came to Sylvia and one day and just said, you know, this isn't what I wanted. This is not what I wanted. And they sat with that and worked with that. And as I understand the story, the student got back in touch with Sylvia soon after that and said, you know, I have a new view on this. She said, it isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. You know? So there it is. First noble truth, it isn't what I wanted. Of course she didn't want this illness. None of us wants illness to come, but it's what I've got. You know, there's such acceptance in that phrase of, of the way it is. Um, and the peace of the way it is, which is really what the Third Noble Truth is inviting us to. Same conditions, but awake and peaceful. So I added a phrase to that, and I added a phrase to that during a long retreat many, many years ago, when in the middle of the retreat and, and really in the middle of, of quite depth of practice, an illness came. And I just started using it all the time. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. But what became really clear to me was that the next line of that creative mental note was, choose peace. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. Choosing peace. Choosing peace moment by moment. And then the contraction would come again. The fear would come again. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. I'm going to choose peace. You know, just over and over. It's like bathing ourselves with compassionate truth. Another creative mental note I quite like, I developed from a conversation with Jack Cornfield on yet another long retreat here at Spirit Rock. And he had sat the first month of February and then he was teaching the month of March, and I had, was sitting both months. So I walked into an interview with him and said, you know, how, how, are you, how are you doing? You just got off retreat two days ago, now you're teaching. And uh, he said, you know, my practice is to be at peace with. So, I, you know, and this is what he said. He said, I'm being at peace with car trouble. I'm being at peace with integrating back into family life. I'm being at peace with having to schedule this meeting I don't have time for. I'm being at peace with. And I thought, oh, that's a great practice. You know, at peace with this, at peace with this, at peace with this.
And the last creative mental note that I'll share comes from my very, very good friend. And what she talks about when there's a lot of struggle in her system, uh, she has this phrase she uses, she just says to herself, honey, drop the load. <laughs> drop the load. You know, and the first time she said it to me, my whole body just relaxed. It's like, whew, we're walking around carrying these tremendous loads. And some of them don't even belong to us. Drop the load. And thinking back to one of the old Zen stories, you know, that that's actually in one of the old Zen stories, a definition of, of an enlightenment experience is, is that uh, the way I remember the story, the person dropped the load and then somebody said to them, well, what are you going to do now? And they, and they silently picked up the load again and kept walking down the road, you know, because we have bodies that are going to continue to have that first noble truth interact. Pick up the load again, but a little lighter, and then drop the load. So I'm sure you can see through what I'm saying the importance of the spirit of kindness, of loving kindness and all this, and that that really makes the difference between uh, the practice that's, that's dry and filled with self-judgment and shoulds and the very same practice that has a, an acceptance and an ease of well-being in it. A third doorway, cultivating peace, is uh, peace through inner and outer simplicity, the practice of simplicity. And we were talking about that a little bit during the precepts renewal this morning, how many material belongings we have and how the complexity of our stuff makes it harder to be mindful about practicing the precepts sometimes because it just gets complicated. Uh, this kind of ongoing question, do I need this? Is this a want or a need? Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, each one of us needs to investigate for ourselves with every situation whether it's a want or a need and what the best way to respond is. That's, that's wisdom happening. But I certainly learned a great deal about differentiating between the two living in India for six months last year. It was actually my very first lesson, like in the first 24 to 48 hours of being in country. And it was actually my first time in India. I hadn't been there before. So I figured I'd stay long enough to really get acclimated and let it speak to me, which I did. And what I learned was any time that I had a need or a want of any level, it was really more peaceful to let go of it. Because the endless complications of even, can I have that piece of fruit that's peeled that I want and that I might need for my body is too complicated. Um, so, you know, interesting question. Is it a want or a need? How do we relate to these things? Uh, 
And then in terms of the precepts themselves, this inner and outer simplicity, the precepts create a simplicity in our lives because we know what direction we want to go. So when our minds jump in and go, oh, but I really want to say this or I really want to do this, in the moments when we're aligned with these practices of non-harming, it becomes much simpler. It becomes less about trying to justify our speech and justify our actions and more about, oh, I really care about this. So, you know, I'm going to keep it simple and uh, the peace that can come out of that. I think about it as creating a, a non-contentious, guilt-free heart. You know, the practice of non-harming. It's like, so the heart isn't fighting with anything and it's not struggling with anything. It's not feeling guilty. And what I love about that is we don't have to practice the precepts perfectly to have a guilt-free heart. It's just that alignment with the intention that can create the guilt-free heart. We don't need to be perfect uh, because we're practicing. It's another doorway. And then, you know, there's the depths of the meditation itself. There's the doorway of stillness and, and silence, whether it's our 45 minutes together every Wednesday morning, whether it's a retreat, whether it's sitting on our rocking chair looking out the window with a cup of tea in the morning. Um, that stillness and that silence and the peace. And I'm sure you all have activities in your lives. And after I'm done with the reflection, we'll check in. You know, what is it? What are the the places in your life or the little moments that you want to mark to yourself saying, ah, the conditions of peace are more likely here. Because when we can know what they are and honor them with our attention, uh, they develop more power. So the meditation practice itself. There's a quote from one of the texts, uh, Sutta Nipata, as in the ocean's midmost depth, no wave is born, but all is still. So let the practitioners be still, be motionless, and nowhere should they swell. So you think about, you know, the, the beach and the waves crashing on the beach. But when you're way out in that ocean, the waves are just as big, but there's enough space there's enough room in the water that you're not actually getting the swells. Uh, same conditions, but totally different manifestation. And when it says, let the practitioners be still and motionless, you know, there's a physical stillness and motionless um, ability. We all know that when we're sitting in meditation and the knee pain comes, and that grace that just allows us to sit like a rock and let the pulsing come and let it get big and let the fear about it come and let the fear about the knee pain get big and we just stay still. There's incredible ability to learn in that because we're not diverting our energy to trying to fix and adjust, but we're just saying, okay, can I bear to be with this human body as it is? You know, this constant river of discomforts and aliveness. So we get to learn about that in a less distracted way. 
but also the process itself, if we're not interfering with it by moving around, it gets to play out its whole cycle without us messing with it. So it's powerful. But I also think about being still and being motionless in terms of, of the mind. Something hard comes and the mind immediately wants to go mess around in it. And that moment, again, the grace, we just say, no, not now. Let's just be with the sadness as it is and not run around it, trying to make meaning out of it. How am I going to resolve this? Maybe I should go to therapy. Just stillness. And then the sadness can live its life out without interference. And then we see it go and we realize, oh, it's okay to be sad. It comes and it goes. There's great peace in that. Then there's the fact about the silence and the stillness that creates a peaceful heart that can then know itself more fully and respond more fully. This quote from Gandhi, In the attitude of silence, the soul finds the path in a clearer light, and what is elusive and deceptive resolves itself into crystal clearness. Our life is a long and arduous quest after truth, and the soul requires inward restfulness to attain its true height. Inward restfulness. So sometimes when we can rest in moments of that natural great peace, (coughs) even when something in our hearts or our lives is elusive or deceptive, out of taking a few moments in that way, we can return to that which is elusive and deceptive and go, oh, I see. I see more clearly now. I have a new idea about how to respond. And then there's that relationship between peace and love and connection. One last quote here from Alice Walker. One day, when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and ran all over the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. That's such a beautiful movement. I can just imagine her sitting, you know, in that feeling. For her, it was a feeling of being, you know, like a motherless child, that that isolation, the loneliness, you know, that comes in cycles. And when we sit quietly with it, (coughs) the possibility that that same isolation and loneliness can in a moment reveal its connected nature and realize, oh, there's no separation at all. And that wake up and that smile that happens when we remember. (laughs) The last doorway to peace I want to talk about is the doorway of letting go. A simple way I like to remind myself of the possibility of the third noble truth, 
this possibility of awakening, fully awakening, is just let go of the struggle. Let go of the struggle. You know, the peace that is possible in a moment of letting go of the struggle. But we all know that there's no formula to let go of the struggle. It sounds simple. It sounds easy. We've had people say it to us, just let go already. We've said it to other people. Um, You know, why? Because because we care, you know, we want to see that letting go. So we give ourselves a hard time. How come you haven't let go yet? Because conditions aren't together for letting go to happen yet. This famous quote by Ajahn Chah, when you let go a little, you will have a little peace. (laughs) When you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. And when you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. It's almost this question, how much peace can you tolerate today? Can you tolerate complete peace? Maybe just a little peace in this moment. And we each have stories about the magic of letting go and the mysteriousness of that process. I'll share one personal story and weave it into this quote by Ajahn Chah, which I use as a direct teaching, um, not just a, a nice quote that inspires, but I actually use it and track on the continuum with certain situations in my life where I'm at you know, over time. So this story takes place in the Singapore International Airport mid-December last year as I was traveling home from Nepal and Kathmandu. You know, speaking of simplicity, I lived for six months out of a suitcase and a backpack. And, you know, you really realize how little you need. I'm, I'm still getting used to closets full of stuff and boxes and this, this thought keeps coming to mind. I, you know, I clearly don't need any of this. I didn't need it for six months. Couldn't even remember what was at home. Mm-hmm. So I was walking through the Singapore International Airport with my gear, which at that point had expanded, as gear does, <laughs> to uh, include not just the suitcase and the backpack, but also uh, a seat cushion and a small uh, jola or shoulder bag and an umbrella that for some reason I felt like would be good to bring back to the United States. I have no idea what I was thinking. Um, And I was walking from where I got off the plane to where I was going to spend the night and in airport hotel. And I got to the hotel and I was pushing a cart those carts they have in the airport. And I got to the hotel and I was unloading my belongings when I noticed that something was missing. And what was missing was the jola or the shoulder bag. And in that jola, there were three items. And the three items were the notebooks of, you know, 15 texts of notes 
of texts that I'd studied that I was unable to bring back to the United States. So notes for 15 texts, uh, extensive notes from teachings from His Holiness the Karmapa, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, all these high masters. Um, so, you know, basically your master's thesis, except you can't go do it again because it's in the oral tradition, was in this jola, uh, which is exactly why I was carrying it with me because I didn't want it to get lost and, you know, somewhere else it needed to be very close to my person. And it was gone. So I'm running through the Singapore airport. It's huge. There are four terminals, miles, tracing back my route. And I'd gone through several of these terminals to get to the hotel, running at top speeds, just thinking about, oh, you know, the teachings that I, this teacher, and I have, te you know, she gave me personalized instructions, and I don't have, thinking, 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 thinking. Uh, getting more and more agitated, running at higher and higher speeds, searching. Um, it was nowhere. It was nowhere. And, you know, I also knew the truth of the fact that unattended items will be confiscated and destroyed. So, you know, I mean, that's the way airports run these days. So as an unattended item, uh, uh, running a little bit less fast. And I'm just realizing it's gone. I've lost it. You know, it's over six months of caring and work. And I'm moving slower and slower and slower. And I finally I start walking. And as I'm walking along, it just starts to fall away. You know, first it was just a little bit like, well, you know, it's okay. I didn't have it before. I didn't have it now. I was kind of trying to appease myself. You know, and, and, and a bit of a spiritual override, too. Oh, got to let go of things. You know, this is a little piece in that. I started to settle down. And I'm walking. And I, you know, I, I, it just starts to become more and more peaceful. And I realize, you know, conditions created this. I did the best I could to, to build all this. And I did the best I could to hold on to it. And it disappeared. And... You know, it's gone, and it was just, okay, okay. And I could feel the waves of sadness. And it was just acceptance with the sadness. And I could feel the waves of beating myself up about it and just realizing, yeah, of course I'm beating myself up, you know? What else would I do in that moment? And it was just like, oh, a little more peace here. And finally I just stopped, and I realized, you know, I don't need those notebooks. Whatever I learned is enough. Whatever I remember is enough. It's okay. And as my friend says, I, I dropped the load. And I just stopped. I'm standing there in the middle of the airport smiling. You know, people are staring at me because I've been racing through the airport. And I'm just smiling. I'm like, it's okay. You know, I can let go of this and be okay. And then after a moment, I sort of turned around and I thought, well, you know, I looked over and there was a kind of a kiosk said information. I thought, well, I'll just let them know that I lost it, you know, in case they find it. There's millions of people in this airport, so I wasn't holding on to it. But and I went over, I said, oh, you know, I, I lost a bag. And she said, oh, what did it look like? It's gold. It's a Jola. And she looks at me, she goes, did it have a shawl on it? A shawl on it. 
And I just looked at her. I said, yes. I wrapped a brown shawl around it. And she smiled. She said, you know, we just found it way over on Terminal 1. Five minutes ago, we've been looking for you. We were about to page you. <coughs> wow. Thank you. So, and you know, and the connection with her, I was so grateful to her. I was so grateful to who found it. I was so grateful for Singapore Airport being of the condition to be that organized. It would not have happened in Kathmandu, let me tell you. <laughs> and yet, as I went through that process of thanking her, thanking the man who found it, getting the bag, there was no change. I completely understood that I did not need this bag. I did not need these, this notebook. And everything was fine. And I could accept the bag with a full heart because I wasn't holding on to it anymore. And it's so funny, it's in my closet now. I went and looked in my notebook for my retreat instructions from my teacher in India, and that's the only time I've even opened it. <laughs> you know? So, you know, the moment of letting go completely, and then we pick up the bag again, <laughs> carry it around like it's important. Uh, so, what we all know is that when our minds are increasingly at peace, we can increasingly shine peace through the world. You know, if I had been angry at myself and conditions when I went and talked to that woman at the information kiosk, I could have really, you know, said something that I wish I hadn't said or uh, spilled my anger out to her, my fear, you know, shared that with her. Instead, I was able to share gratitude because the heart was at peace. Um, you know, and you could say also because the story worked out well, but I was already connected with her before she said, well, does it have a shawl on it? So there's some examples about figures who are beacons of peace in the world. And the truth is, is that if we really took the time to sit down with each one of us and share our stories, we would know that everyone here is a beacon of peace in the world. But just to share a couple of stories, and one is from the time after the Buddha, and someone that really had a lot of influence in bringing many thousands of people's of hearts to the Dharma. Um, a few centuries after the time of the Buddha, and that's King As um, Ashoka, who is really well known in the canon as, as the king um, that because of his influence and because of his love of these teachings, uh, really brought Buddhism into India in a way that it hadn't even been in the time of the Buddha. But there's this interesting story about him and, and how he came to the practice and, and also how he came to live the practice in his governance. And he was actually a warring king in his younger years. You know, though it's, the way is often true. We do a lot more warring internally and externally when we're younger. You know, we just haven't learned yet. And so he was doing a lot of external warring. And at the end of this one battle, he was walking through the battlefield and, you know, the dead and the wounded and the cries. And I mean, it, 
And there was this monastic, Buddhist monastic, also walking through that battlefield. And King Ashoka was just filled with grief and rage and fear and disgust and self-righteousness and, you know, really stirred up by these events. And he looked at this monk who was just walking with his bowl so peacefully, so in acceptance to what was happening. And the insight he had was, I who have everything am not as happy or as peaceful as this monk who has nothing. And this is a wake-up for him. You know, he's so caught up in his governance and his palaces and the intrigue and the politics and all the people and this monk passing through and the simplicity, he realized, oh, maybe I could bring this to my kingdom within the palaces and the politics and the people. Very interesting. And he did. He did. It became a very peaceful kingdom. He embraced, um, he embraced environmentalism. He embraced vegetarianism, it's said. Um, all kinds of different things. And then a more modern beacon of peace that was actually, I just re-picked up this book um, a few days ago. It's quite an old book. But it's about the Peace Pilgrim. Do you remember the Peace Pilgrim? Those of you that are old enough to... The Peace Pilgrim was a beacon of peace in our country, in the United States. And she died in 1981. And before her death, she made a vow, a commitment, that she was going to walk this country, walk the miles and roads of this country, with only what she carried in her um, blue kind of jacket with lots of pockets. So it said that she had a comb, a toothbrush, petitions to sign to give to the UN and the President of the United States, and her current correspondence. That was all she carried with her. And her vest that somebody made for her on the front said, Peace Pilgrim, and I'll leave this book up here, this photo of her. And on the back it said, um, 25,000 miles for peace in the world. And she did that. It took her 10 years. And then she kept walking. She said, it's, you know, it hasn't come to fruition yet, but I no longer need to count the miles. I'm going to keep walking for peace. And every shelter that she stayed in was offered freely. She carried no money. She was actually arrested for vagrancy because she had no home and no money and put in jail. <laughs> as soon as the local authorities kind of realized what she was about, of course she was released. And her comment about it was, you know, it was a lovely place to rest and a good meal. <laughs> and, and in one imprisonment, uh, she actually spent time with the, woman, the women in her cell who who commented on the fact that she was the only one that came into the cell smiling and she shared with them her vision for world peace and they had this incredible discussion all night long. Uh, this group of women in a quiet, simple place. So, and everything that she was fed was also offered. You know, a monastic of our time, basically. 
There's so many different ways of walking the path of peace. My favorite meditation instruction from Ajahn Amaro, who used to be one of the abbots of a Baigiri monastery in Mendocino and uh, now is the abbot of a much larger monastery in England, it goes like this. Rest in the natural peace and ease of the mind and body that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. If anything arises to interfere with that natural peace and ease, attend to that. Then I think of in parentheses behind it, if nothing arises to interfere with that natural peace and ease, please rest in natural great peace. It's a beautiful instruction. I thought I'd invite us to end with a song, actually. And I'm sure some of you love to sing and some of you hate to sing. And whether you're humming along or singing fully, everyone's a part of the wish of the song. (laughs) It's very simple. I, I learned it from Betsy Rose, who is one of the teachers of the family program and I worked with for many years. And the words are, peace be with you and with you be peace. Peace be with you, and with you be peace. So it goes. Peace be with you, and with you be peace. Peace be with you, and with you be peace. We'll sing it until people get it. And, you know, this is also the practice of loving kindness. So... You can look at people or you can look out the window at, you know, passing deer or the clouds and send it out. Peace be with you and with you be peace. Peace be with you and with you be peace. Peace be with you and with you be peace. Peace be with you and with you be peace. Do it one more time. Peace be with you and with you be peace. Peace be with you and with you be peace. And just take a breath in and rest as much as possible in the natural peace and ease of the mind and body that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Knowing that as we rest in increasing peace and ease and love, we're already offering a gift to the world. And knowing that in a little while as we travel out to touch the world, 
that we're also offering it, whether they know it or not. That is what I have to offer for our reflection. Thank you for your listening. And I left um, a few minutes in case there was um, something that was a question or, or just some piece of this that you wanted to explore a little bit more because there's many doorways to peace. You might have a different doorway that I didn't mention or even maybe just a couple people sharing something that really helps you drop into peace. Please. Oh, what's been um, really interesting and at times challenging for me recently in my practice is that um, I'm, I'm bringing peace uh, into my mind and my heart and then I come to a place where I'm like, because oh, it's so um, unfamiliar in mm-hmm. so many ways, and I'm sort of waiting for the next shoe to drop, yeah. as we say. Mm-hmm. And then I just bring myself back and say, let it be, let it be. And, you know, baby steps I'm finding to being able to really hold, not just treasure of the peace, but the deserving of it, mm. humanity in the deserving mm-hmm. of holding and being peaceful. Yeah. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your description. You know, it's, it's a beautiful description of, you know, you move into those layers of peace, and then sometimes the next thing that comes is that startle, you know, do I deserve this? This is too much. It's, it's that deepest layer of fear body, uh, contracted sense of self coming up and going, you know. It's that, that question, how much peace can you tolerate today? Mm-hmm. I meant that quite seriously. You're talking about moving down through the layers. Yeah, it's a process. Thank you. Did you have something you yeah, wanted to something share? Yeah, that helps me when I get um, sad or, well, my problem is more getting agitated. I get too excited. I've got to fix everything right now, mm-hmm. especially other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> so what helps me is um, thinking of it as weather mm-hmm. and, and not thinking of it as permanent, but something just like the rain, the sun, it's going to go. It's just weather that helps me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that metaphor. I think a lot of us use that metaphor. Of, oh, it, it does feel so permanent sometimes when the sadness comes. It's just the reminder, oh yeah, weather system. <laughs> Forecast for next week is different. <laughs> Thank you. Did you have something, Marty? Yeah. Each morning as I am going into my office, I stop and I smell the roses. There's this beautiful rose bush that just is so fragrant and it's just just takes a moment 
but it, it, it just is transporting and it helps me to um, enter the day in a balanced way. I love it that you actually do the practice of smelling the flowers. I love it. It reminds me, in my kitchen growing up, my mother had this little ceramic dish, I guess. It had a little frog on it. And it said, don't hurry, don't worry, don't forget to smell the flowers. <laughs> and it's so funny, these things from our childhood, they stay with us for the rest of our lives. It's like, oh, there's my instruction. Don't hurry, don't worry, don't forget to smell the flowers. <laughs> Allow yourself a moment of peacefulness. Thank you. Anything else? Please. Yeah, I've, I've been allowing myself to, to walk for an hour every morning. Mm. And I used to just cut my walk short because I felt like I had so many things to do, which yeah. I do. But now I'm... I'm allowing myself to walk for longer and it, it really feels good. It really feels good to just, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not walking as fast. Mm. You know, I'm walking at a, at a pace that, that, you know, however it feels good at the moment. And especially now with everything in bloom, it's really a beautiful time to be walking. And, and for me, that's just a great way to sort of sift through my mind and things come and go and, and during the course of that hour walk um, a whole bunch of different things can happen in my mind mm -hmm. different states yeah 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 that's a great practice how many people uh, do a, a taking a walk practice or a, some sort of nature practice that helps everything settle and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a common one at various times in our life, really important. Uh, any last share? I just want to thank you oh. very much for your teaching this morning. It's very integrating mm. and uh, uh, very wise. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's always such a pleasure to reconnect with you here. I think of you often on a Wednesday morning and just know that, you know, that this is... This is one of the home bases for incredible Dharma practice, you know, right here on Wednesday mornings every week. So thank you for your practice and for welcoming me in. I wish you a safe journey into the world.